book of the month. Follow the link to buy your copy. It's September and our catechism classes based on the Heidelberg Catechism have recommenced. If you haven't got a copy of the catechism, then I would really urge you to purchase a copy and to keep it and to read it. It will be a worthwhile addition to any library. And a personal paper copy is probably essential for any meaningful study of the plain and practical Christian teachings that the Catechism contains. So for September, the Heidelberg Catechism will be our Book of the Month. Links to buy your copy at just £2.95 can be found on the episode notes during September. Or contact me by email. The email address is bob at bobmacavoy.co.uk September's Book of the Month the Heidelberg Catechism. When you buy a copy, a small amount of the price supports this podcast. Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. When a tyrannical dictator decides he's going to do something, he's probably going to do it even if it is completely irrational and nonsensical. This King Nebuchadnezzar is one such tyrant. He can do anything he wants. He's the undisputed ruler of the known world of his day. He has an army. He has elite troops, like a kind of an SAS squadron who are sworn to carry out his every command. And right now he's perplexed, and he's worried, and he's annoyed. And that's making him a very dangerous man indeed. You see, he's had this nightmare. And it's a dream. And it's waking him up. And he's afraid to go to sleep in case he has the dream again. And he's just getting more and more absurd and unreasonable. But thankfully, Babylon has an education system. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 1. And the university there has produced some of the cleverest men in the whole world. So surely it shouldn't be too much trouble for one of them to sort the matter out. So he calls together his counsel. Now remember, this is not a reasonable man. This is an unreasonable man. He calls these counselors together. Let's call them his special advisors. You know, like the spads up at Stormont. And he gets them together to explain his dream. But he isn't going to tell them what the dream actually is. After all, this dream's pretty terrifying. He doesn't even want to think about it. Never mind think about its implications. Never mind talk about it. And of course, these sages, they are stunned by his request, especially by the explicit threats that accompany it. Look at Daniel chapter 2, please, and verse 5. See what he's threatening. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, that's Aramaic. O king, live forever. 
Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Effectively, what he's saying is he's going to execute them and make their families homeless. Of course, there's an incentive in verse 6, isn't there? But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honour. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. So the king won't tell them the dream, but he wants him to tell him the dream. And if they don't tell him the dream, he's going to destroy them and their families. And if they do tell him the dream, something that no one can do, then he's going to reward them. So it's stalemate. Unreasonable or what? I wonder what the content of the dream was that was troubling him. You see, I think that dreams are very often sometimes to do with worry and to do with uncertainty. And I think the king's personal circumstances must have been affecting his mind. I wonder what it was he was worried about. And I'll come to that in a wee moment. But kings are not entirely reasonable. If you go back to that passage in 1 Samuel, you'll see that the people of Israel were given some reality checks when they asked about a king. And of course, we can apply this to every government. We understand from Romans chapter 13 that governments are established by the Lord. We're told that he sets them in place and he disposes of them. We know that the government is put there for a purpose and that we are to walk in obedience and submission to those who are authority over us. And we know that governments have obligations put upon them to order their ways conscious understanding that one day they will answer before God for what they have done. And we know also that they are given specific instructions. They are to punish that which is evil, and they are to reward that which is good. We have to ask ourselves, looking at governments right throughout history, and many of them have lived up to the provisions of Romans chapter 13. Can you name one? Nobody can. But when you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll see that when the Israelites were asking for a king to govern over them, and up until this point they'd been governed by judges who sought the face of God in prayer and who ruled over them. But now they're looking for a king. They want to be like all the other nations. Samuel tells them honestly what that's going to involve. And he gets that directly from God. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. Let's look at the list. First of all, there will be conscription. Verse 11. 
He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. So he's going to come to your home and he's going to take away your children and he's going to conscript them into his army, whether you like it or not. And then in verse 12, he needs servants if he's going to be a king. He's going to appoint him captain over thousands and captain over fifties. And here's why he's going to do this. He's going to build a management structure. In other words, he's going to build a civil service. And he will use that civil service to make the kingdom work for him. Look, verse 12. He will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and his instruments of his chariots. So first of all, he's going to set up an army to defend himself and he's going to conscript people into his army. Then he's going to establish a civil service and he's going to use that civil service to enrich himself. Verse 13. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries. In other words, to be household servants, to be cooks and to be bakers. Because all of these people who he has conscripted into the army and the civil service he has now built up, they will have to be fed. So he's going to come and he's going to take your daughters and he's going to build up a domestic service. Verse 14. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards. Now, if he's going to feed this army, where's he going to get the food? He's not going to come and buy it off you, is he? He's going to come and he's going to confiscate your land. He's going to put you out of your home, put you off your land, take away your farm. (laughs) Well, maybe not all of it. Uh, Verse 14 tells us that he's going to take the best of them. Uh, he leave you with a bog and a bit of a field that's not very productive. But he'll take the good stuff. And then in verse 15, we see that he's going to tax you. He's going to build up this vast bureaucracy and this standing army. And they're all going to need fed and he's going to take your land to feed them and then he's even going to tax you. He'd take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and then later down in verse 17 and he will take the tenth of your sheep. Going to take 10% off you in tax. Actually that wouldn't be too bad. If we had 10% income tax today it'd be great wouldn't it? wonder do you know how much we pay in tax? I heard somebody working out that by the time we have paid income tax, national insurance and VAT and green taxes on our fuels, all the various taxes that the government levy upon us that we don't even think about. When you walk into the shop and you buy something and there's VAT on it, you don't even think that you're paying 20% VAT Somebody worked out that we're earning, whatever we're earning, we're paying about 50% of our income to the government, over 50%. This will go on. And Samuel is warning them honestly. Your king.
king, your government is not working for you. It's not benefiting you. It's taking from you to enlarge itself, to become enriched, uh, to gorge itself on the, off the back of the people of the land. So in verse 18, And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye have chosen. And of course God had warned them. So there's no point in crying. And Samuel says to the people, You will cry to the Lord and the Lord will not hear you. And despite all that list of truths, truths that have stood firm from that day of Samuel to this very day, Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. That we may be like the nations. What do you want to be like the nations for? That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. How disillusioned were they? Think the government fights your battles. You seriously think that? Is there anybody here who voted to spend millions and billions of our pounds in Ukraine? Who voted for that? Did you? Did anybody vote for to go to war with Saddam Hussein? Who voted for that? Based on lies. Based on a dodgy dossier. Full of lies. Who voted for that? But the people wanted a king. And from that day until this day, the purpose of governments have been to sustain themselves. To build up their empires. Tell me if I'm wrong. To build up their empires. To make themselves rich at our expense. So that they can have duck houses and moats round their castles. And houses all over the place. We have scandals of politicians leeching off the public purse in this very land. Now, what's that got to do with Nebuchadnezzar? Because you see, I think Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his nightmare was that his kingdom would not last. Every government, every king wants to go on forever. What did the Chaldeans say when they came in before the king, when he summoned them in chapter 2 and verse 2? The king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. And verse 4, the Chaldeans said to the king, O king, live forever. Every government wants to go on. Every empire wants to be sustained. And here's this dream. And the dream is troubling the king. Something's wrong. Something's not right. There's something ahead of me that isn't going to be right. And the order went out in verse 13. A decree. A decree went out that all the wise men in the land were to be slain. Because they couldn't interpret the dream and tell the king what the the implications of this dream were. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. 
learning that you're about to be executed fairly concentrates the mind. So Daniel asked to see the king. And he gathered together his companions, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they prayed together. And the Lord revealed not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, Art thou able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Well, no man can do that, not even Daniel. Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded Cannot the wise man, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. And you can read the dream passage for yourself in verse 31 to verse 35. I don't want to cover old ground. But it's a great statue. It's made up of four parts and it's terrible in its appearance. And the head is of gold, pure and unadulterated and precious. And the upper torso and the arms are of silver, again a precious metal, but less valuable. And then the lower torso and the belly and the thigh of brass, a metal alloy, and the legs of iron and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Don't be thinking of the clay at the side of the road, think of a lovely fine ceramic cup. Pure china, that kind of clay. Now, if you know anything of metal work, you'll know that metal and fine bone china don't mix. The feet to the lowest part of the statue is the weakest part. And as the king watches in his dream, this terrible vision, a little stone emerges, a stone not made by human work, and it travels to the feet, and it smote the feet, and the iron and the clay parted, and the feet are destroyed, and the whole image comes crashing to the ground, and is destroyed by the elements. But the stone grew and expanded and filled the earth. It's then that Daniel begins to give the interpretation. You see, the stone represents kingdoms. Daniel's looking ahead. It's a prophetic vision given by God. We can see it looking back. And we can identify those kingdoms that Daniel saw, that golden kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's realm given him by God. Verse 37 down to verse 38. A marvellous kingdom, one of which that king can be truly proud. And then there's the silver kingdom and the brass kingdom, the kingdoms of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Iron Kingdom and the China Kingdom, the last great world empire, the empire of Rome, a strong empire that destroyed everything in its path. Verse 40. But there's a weakness in the Roman Empire. There's a division, a division between East and West, and that division will be its downfall. And every one of those empires descending in purity and power. Isn't it true that all empires 
descend. Humanity descends. We're not evolving, we're descending, we're declining. That's the human condition. We're not getting better. We're dropping more and more, as you can see, into chaos and depravity. I've just finished recording a wee three-part podcast on the life of Anthony Norris Groves, one of the early brethren missionary pioneers. And when I was researching for that, I found that in the 1800s, India was opened up for the gospel. And the gospel spread throughout the land of India thanks to a law that was enacted in the Parliament at Westminster. A new charter was granted to the British East India Company. And that charter included a clause specifically mandating missionary activity in every region of India where the British East Indian Company had jurisdiction. That was passed in Parliament. How different from modern-day legislation passed by the so-called Mother of Parliaments. How utterly degrading have our laws become How far have we fallen? The very last act of the last Stormont Mandate was what? To pass a measure that would prevent people from offering help to women going to abortion clinics to destroy their newborn baby, their their unborn babies. That was the very last thing the Assembly of the Wicked at Stormont did. Utterly degrading. And then that little stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Look at verse 44. Here's these kingdoms. Every kingdom rising and falling until this other kingdom comes. And in verse 44, we see that that kingdom never ends. It says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Earthly kingdoms and earthly kings, concerned only with their own self-preservation, concerned only with the expansion of their empires, are going to be crushed and broken by this little stone. Let's try and figure out who that is. Let's think who describes himself as a stone. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, Jesus said, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner. Paul in Ephesians 2 and 20, upon the foundation, the stone of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief 
cornerstone. First Peter 2 and verse 8. Jesus is described as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. His kingdom is the kingdom that shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms of this world. But it's just a stone. Contrasted with the great and mighty kingdoms represented by the image, it's just a stone. Who think a stone could do so much damage? People look at our Saviour and our Lord Jesus and they feel contempt for his meekness and his yielding himself up to be crucified, even if that is part of God's plan. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's a stone that was not cut out by men, not hewn by a mason, not of human generation. Jesus, without beginning and without end. It's a powerful stone. Don't be fooled by what others think. This stone strikes the image, strikes it on its most vulnerable place, its weakest part, and it brings every kingdom in this world tumbling down. And not just the image, but what it represents. All the earthly kingdoms of this world falling before Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven, and things on earth, and things under the earth. So what I'm trying to say is this. Earthly empires concerned with their own preservation set up to benefit themselves and to sustain themselves as their primary purpose. That's why wars are fought. That's why secret services are established. That's why the British government uses its so-called soft power to influence events all around the world. All of these kingdoms are set up by men to preserve themselves. And don't think that you're part of that. You're the milk cow that keeps them going. But the message of this passage in Daniel is that every empire will fall, every monarch will die, every dynasty will end, but the kingdom of our God and the kingdom of his Christ is forever and forever. In the book of Isaiah chapter 9, we read of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's the difference between Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of this world.
And in this age, when the kingdoms of this world are vying for your loyalty, we're faced with a challenge. Whose kingdom do we belong to? The United Kingdom? The American government of the world as it wants? The WEF? The modern kingdom of this, the modern kingdoms of this world? Or do you belong to the kingdom of Christ? The kingdom that will go on forever. What we learn is that God is in control of history, that his word is sure, and it always comes to pass. Isaiah, or Daniel rather, speaking to the king that day, said the dream is certain, it will happen. Don't trust earthly kings, trust only in the king of kings, the Lord of Lords. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for the Semper Reformata podcast. Subscribe and give it a five-star rating. See you next time.